This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Wrap around. Violence. It's a part of every shift I do in some way, shape, or another. No shift goes by where someone hasn't been hurt either by someone else, by themselves, purposefully or accidentally. I wish it was different, but this is the world I live in. It's so true, Sarah. And we have addressed violence in other podcasts. We've talked about gun violence, police-associated injuries, child abuse, and human trafficking, just to name a few. Yeah, really. I feel like it has been a theme in many of our podcasts, and it's certainly a theme during many of my ED shifts. Sarah, it really breaks my heart to see violence as a part of my own pediatric patients' lives. It should just not be something a kid has to deal with. And yet, and yet, it is. And depending on where you practice, you may see violence in kids and young adults on your shift regularly. And that's the key, right? Violence can happen anywhere, but we know it is more common in certain cities and even certain parts of cities. Your zip code is a huge predictor of your exposure to violence. There has to be something we can do to decrease this, to stop the bleed, so to speak. Wouldn't it be cool if you could just wrap around that young, violently injured person, provide them with community resources, mentorship, support, basically cocoon them with assistance so that they can have a chance to succeed and push past that moment. Yes, and not return to the ED with further episodes of violence. Imagine if all of that was possible. Imagine a free service for violently injured patients, say, between the ages of 13 to 26 years old. Our role in general is really to work with the violently injured patient. This individual uh, was actually shot probably about a month or so before I actually had contact with them because it was like really at the beginning of our program in like 2018 when we first started. And so uh, when I ran into him, uh, it was about a month after he had been shot previously. I worked with him through his violently injured situation. And he also had some legal situations that were going on at the same time. Unfortunately, he had to be incarcerated because of those legal issues, but the family um, itself continued to reach out to me, continued to connect for additional support. Uh, We connected them with Black Child Legacy Campaign, uh, which is one of our partners. Myself and my teammates, we sit on a a MDT uh, at the Oak Park site. And so we were able to connect them with housing resources because uh, the family had become homeless. Uh, We were able to get them hotel vouchers so they could move into a hotel for a couple weeks and then eventually move into an actual place of their own and stuff. And uh, to this day, we still talk. We still communicate. The grandma and the mother have actually uh, opened up a store in the community. And so it's very great to see, you know, some liberation for this family, even though we're still working through some issues with, you know, with the patients that we were dealing with. But it's a great story all and all. And we just hope that, you know, at the end of all this, he sees a great outcome as well. That was Shevist Johnson, a violence intervention specialist in the UC Davis Wraparound Program. The Wraparound Program defines their role as extending the care of violently injured youth and young adults beyond the hospital to support long-term healing and recovery while also helping patients find hope and purpose. I love Shevist's story. And we are going to hear more from him at the end when we talk about the nuts and bolts of making this vision a reality. But first, we are really lucky to hear from Dr. Ian Brown. He's a trauma surgeon and assistant professor of surgery who is dedicated to violence prevention. 
He is the co-lead of the UC Davis wraparound program. Ian, tell us, how did you first get interested in violence prevention and intervention? I think I was always interested in violence prevention. Um, Even growing up, uh, I come from a town called Maywood, Illinois. And Maywood is a great town with a lot of rich history, but it does have its challenges as well. People from Maywood are conscientious and and aware of issues around violence. When I was uh, probably a teenager, Maywood had the second highest violent crime rate per capita in the state of Illinois, behind Harvey, Illinois. It seemed like home when I was growing up, but you definitely had your head on a swivel and you had to be aware of your surroundings at all time. And so we had that early exposure. Having the opportunity here, when I saw this program, I jumped on it. I think that one of the aspects of the program that we really needed to keep it working was to have a liaison, a relationship with the Department of Surgery and the Division specifically of Trauma. That was kind of how I was invited in to help develop this program. Uh, We wanted to connect those pieces as a way of making sure that the program had longevity. So I think building on the natural curiosity that I already had, this was just a really great opportunity that presented itself. Why is this type of violence intervention program so important? So I think historically, the way that we treated trauma related to violence was we addressed uh, physical injuries and then patients were discharged. When you do that, you take people out of a situation, you patch them up and you put them right back into the same situation that produced the injuries in the first place. When you change the approach and you start to think of it with a public health approach instead, it's a little different. Imagine, for example, a patient who comes in with a heart attack. If all you did for the heart attack was open up the vessels to the heart and you send them back, then they're going to come back to you a little bit later. But if instead you do a more comprehensive care, you get them on exercise program, give them that aspirin, that statin, and hook them up so that they're regularly seeing their doctor, they're much less likely to come back. Well, trauma that's related to violence can have the same approach. You can address a lot of the social determinants that contributed to the risk in the beginning. That wasn't historically the case, and I think that's possibly because consciously or unconsciously, there's always been a certain amount of victim blaming when it comes to violence-related trauma. We ask ourselves, why is that person out at such and such a time of night? Or we have the sort of the, the blue humor where people will joke in passing about, oh, the person was probably on their way to church at two in the morning when they got attacked by those two dudes, right? It's a common joke that you hear. But the unspoken part of that is that there's a level of victim blaming that used to go on. And so the system needed to rise up and address the situation in ways that would make a, a meaningful impact on the, on the determinants that contributed to that injury. The public health approach sort of puts the burden back on us to say, well, how can we make the second time better? How can we keep uh, people who've already identified themselves at high risk because they've already been injured? How can we keep those people safe? I love that analogy, and I also totally buy into the public health model. 
But Ian, why should this be done in the hospital versus by the government or another nonprofit? The hospital is unique because it all funnels back to us. It all funnels into the emergency department, you know, and to the trauma department. We are the first people often that many people who have limited access to care will see. And so we have this tremendous opportunity that many others don't have. And so we can connect people to the resources that, say, other organizations like the government or the community may already have, but that other people can't find. So we serve as that gateway, that doorway. I also think that a hospital has an obligation to be a part of the community that it serves. So here's our chance to give back to the community. So how did you get the wraparound program started at UC Davis? The UCSF framework of their wraparound program is what our framework was established upon. But I think there were a lot of groups that were doing a lot of great work, like Ceasefire and different organizations in Oakland and Chicago that the idea originally was built off of. What we were able to do to make it sustainable here was find uh, just the right stakeholders. And part of that, of course, is the money. One of the things that we were really fortunate to be able to be connected with was actually the Kohl's Care Program. The Kohl's department store sells these stuffed animals and teddy bears and things like that. And they were using the money to give to different organizations that served youth. And so the Kohl's Care Program actually funded the original launch Another opportunity that we had was we were able to obtain funding from the California Violence Intervention and Prevention Granting Program, the CalVIP organization. This is money that came from the state of California that was specifically set aside to serve community-based organizations and cities to support evidence-based violence reduction initiatives. And we've been able to use that to greatly expand the program to increase our coverage with our violence prevention professionals and our mental health specialists as well. And how do you get patients connected with the program? The cornerstone of our program is the violence prevention professional. This is a person who basically comes from a background where they've had firsthand experience with violence and with facing violence and dealing with it successfully. We use Violence prevention professionals, because they're trained, but they also have this life experience, they have cultural humility, and they're able to basically address the situation in a way that respects uh, where the client is coming from. Our professionals are usually made aware of the patients who come in injured, either by the team or they also have their own search algorithm that makes them aware of anybody that comes into the trauma service with a diagnosis that involves assault or gunshot wound or stabbing. And so anybody between the ages of 13 and 26 then is followed up upon and they begin to develop this relationship. As you can imagine, that relationship building is a very critical moment. It takes advantage of a few things. One, in the immediate setting of injury, oftentimes after the initial shock sort of passes, people are often more willing and motivated to address issues that they might think that they can change that might have contributed to 
them having the injury in the first place. So there's this moment of opportunity that happens there. However, the relationship building is key because not everybody trusts the hospital system in the same way. And oftentimes, if you're seeing uh, care providers who you are sort of suspicious that they don't understand um, completely where you're coming from as a client, as a patient, uh, you might not be willing to put all your trust in them. And so that's that's really where the violence prevention professionals start their work in building that relationship. So it starts there. And then over time, as trust and boundaries and rules are established and that relationship is developed, the violence prevention professionals will connect the clients with community-based organizations and resources so that the care doesn't stop at the point of discharge from the hospital. It actually only begins at that point. Our violence prevention professionals then serve essentially as case managers over the course of a year to ensure that people are making steps and being empowered to have more voice and more say as to where they want their future to go. And that's essentially how that program works. Ian, you're a trauma surgeon. Tell us why this is so important to ED providers. I think that in many ways, the experience of patients who come in after having experienced violence-related trauma is unique and historically unfortunate. So you can imagine that you just got shot, stabbed, or assaulted, and it's been one of the worst days of your life. Then you come into the trauma bay and you undergo a resuscitation, which is also extremely traumatic, both physically and psychologically. You're having your clothes taken off. It's very invasive. There's no privacy. And you're already in a state that is pretty stressful. On top of that, in many cases, when you're coming into the hospital system, your family does not know that you're there. Or if they do, they can't get information for several reasons. One, it's extremely busy and chaotic initially. Two, there may be a police hold or there's a period of time where your identity is withheld from the public just to make sure that you're safe and that uh, investigations can occur effectively. So during that time period, patients have limited information and their families have limited information. And sometimes there's even disinformation. So our ability as a hospital system to build a positive relationship with somebody who comes in after violent injury is compromised right from the beginning. And so we need an important tool to sort of reconnect with the patients, to rebuild the trust, and then to continue care beyond just patching up the stab wound or cleaning out the bullet hole or treating that acute injury. Care cannot stop there because many of the wounds that occur during traumatic injury are not visible and they're not treated with suture. And so I think that's really the reason why this type of team is, is really critical. What are some of the outcomes you guys are tracking? We're tracking a number of outcomes, actually. One is we want to see that the program works. And so sort of longitudinally long-term, we look to see just if there's any uh, recidivism in terms of violence-related injury. But how you define success is very different depending on the stakeholders that we're talking about, even within the, the program itself. 
So the program prevents return to the ED visit for even small things like, say, wound care and things like that, because people are better able to navigate the health system with the help of the violence prevention professionals. Uh, So that's one area. Two, we track people's experience in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder and mental health needs and depression. So that's another outcome that we're looking at. Three, we help people uh, achieve different goals in terms of employment, for example, um, and help with legal system and things like that. So we're following that as well. We look at program retention over the course of the year to see if that's working. And then we also do a series of surveys and a semi-structured interview that we do both at the beginning and the end and then at different points throughout the client's participation in the program to look at different things. One, what their attitudes towards guns and violence are at the beginning versus the end, how they feel in terms of support systems that they have set up within the community at the beginning and at the end, aspects of the program that were beneficial, aspects of the program that could be better, the relationship with the violence prevention professional and how it worked. Do people feel like they're ready to leave the program at the end of a year, engage community resources, and move forward. So a number of different outcomes that we look at uh, in different ways. And what have you found so far? So I would say that while a lot of our data that we've received, particularly from the surveys and from the interviews, is still very preliminary, there are a few key findings. One is I think that most people are not aware of the impact on mental health that the experience has had. And oftentimes we find that the surveys and the interviews can be quite enlightening both to us and to the people giving the interviews or doing the surveys. And I think that they surprise themselves. And it's a moment of uh, real insight that helps them move forward. But it also helps us to see things too and move forward as well. So I think there's been a lot of real positive growth for everybody throughout this process. Two, there are a lot of things that we've seen exposed as far as areas of improvement. A thing that keeps coming up consistently in all of our interviews is that a lot of times when people are violently injured, when we discharge them from the hospital, they don't really feel like they have a safe place to go. There are some um, resources that are available through the California Victims of Crime program to help people relocate. But the time that it takes for people to successfully apply for that type of help doesn't really get them out of harm's way as early as they would like, generally speaking. And so we see some areas of need like that. There are often sometimes stigmas associated with mental health, but I think that people are realizing that there shouldn't be, and that there's a real need for that kind of help after injuries like this. And so we're working on getting rid of the stigma associated with that. Uh, Another issue that we found is that we can improve the hospital experience. There are issues that come up in terms of implicit bias. There's issues in terms of even the way patients sort of are navigated through the hospital system as inpatients that are somewhat unique when violence is involved. And we've been working to sort of make ourselves more aware of that to see if we can make the experience much more positive. 
Okay, Ian, if someone were to set this up at their own hospital, how would you suggest that they approach it? There's a couple really key areas here. Uh, One, I would say don't reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of resources available, and there's a national organization called the HAVI, H-A-V-I. This is a national organization of hospital-based and hospital-affiliated violence intervention programs that has actually a playbook of how to do it. The real key is getting the stakeholders in your hospital system engaged and helping them to see the value of the program. And so you have to understand when you're doing that, how each different group will define success of this program, because it'll be different for each stakeholder. So you have to address that. I think you want to have an evaluation piece in your program that looks at areas of improvement, that's constantly monitoring what you're doing and making sure that it's effective, both in terms of people's experiences and cost effective and and using the limited resources that you have to uh, really push the limit of what you can do. I think cultural competency is a real basis upon which this has to be built. And so the cornerstone of the program is going to be your violence prevention professionals. That part is, is essential, having good training for those individuals, which is also available through the hobby that was previously mentioned. Those are the real keys. And I think that you just have to get buy-in and connection from all your stakeholders, which in our case has included the Department of Surgery, Emergency Medicine, Mental Health uh, Components, and nursing even. So we were lucky here because I think here at UC Davis, everybody's committed to good outcomes and welfare of the clients. There might be differences of opinions of how to accomplish that, but I think that everybody has a central goal. And so we were all willing to have complicated conversations about it. We've been discussing trauma-informed care on the podcast. How does this program integrate these principles? You have to understand, even as any kind of doctor, You're not treating appendicitis. You're not treating, you know, a stab wound. You're treating a patient. And so in order to do so, you have to really take a look at the whole picture and have a sense of of not just the injury, but all the things that predated it, because that's going to impact how an individual will engage the health system and what's going to come as a result of that. So you have to have this trauma-informed care approach. Otherwise, your best laid plans are just going to fall through. I think that probably one of the least well aspects done in medicine is the discharge planning, and that's because we never do the best job of walking in somebody else's shoes. And so it might seem like a good plan to us when we consider a portion of the picture, But that's because we only see a portion of the picture and we haven't really asked all the right questions to get a bigger version of that. The violence prevention professionals have really uh, opened our eyes up to some of the issues that uh, we hadn't really considered as much involving discharge, for example. Anything else you think we should know about the program? I wanted to touch on uh, the experience of one of our past fellows, actually, who came in and he was treating a woman who had gotten injured. and. He asked why she came at him with such hostility when he was trying to do the best he could for her and they had never really met. And then she reminded him that they had actually met because 
he had treated her cousin who had died, as well as another family member who had also been shot. And so in many cases, the health care providers, we see ourselves as the heroes in the story, but that's because we all come, you know, wanting to help people and, and we have the best of intentions. But not everybody always sees us as the heroes based on whatever their past experiences might have been in the hospital. And and so there's a lot of energy that comes into that conversation. And a lot of times we miss each other in the beginning. We can do a better job of that. And that's one of the things that I think that we've learned going forward uh, as a result of this program is that it's not just that moment where we all meet. And even if it was just that moment where we all meet, we just basically took off all their clothes and did a very invasive resuscitation. And so we have to have some understanding that we have to kind of meet each other with a certain amount of respect, but you can't just assume that everybody's always going to think that you're the good guy in the story, even if you want to be. Sometimes you sort of have to adjust and, and meet people where they are. And then, you know, you work together. How did that interaction impact that fellow? You know, it was it was very interesting because he was troubled by this whole experience for quite a while. But I think after they all sort of got to understand that there was this history that existed between them, they were able to speak very much more plainly eye to eye. So the relationship actually ended up growing as a result of that. But I think that he needed to hear that previous aspect of their own exposure to healthcare from before in order to know that because he didn't see himself, you know, the way that everybody else saw him in that story. <laughs> and so uh, it was it was quite eye opening. Now, I'm not going to say he was the bad guy. He, he wasn't the bad guy in the story. But the thing is, like, to assume that you're the hero in the story to everybody is a little bit pretentious. And sometimes you have to understand that that's not everybody's experience uh, with healthcare. But a lot of times when somebody comes in shot, you know, people start off with certain assumptions about the circumstances behind that. And it, it does impact the stay of people, unfortunately. I love talking to Ian. I feel like he's my age, but he is so much wiser. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. Listening to him and Chevis really, like, invigorates my belief in humankind. And that's good because I have a little more from Chevis. Chevis, describe for us your role at the UCD Wraparound Program. So, yeah, as a violence intervention specialist, um, I work hand in hand with uh, violently injured patients after they've been discharged um, after a violent injury. Um, and I provide case management to them for up to 12 months, completely free of charge. And I help connect them to different resources around the community, specifically in their own neighborhoods, if possible, um, and just try to help them get back on their feet, gain some more self-sufficiency and actually um, have more resources for once they finish our program after the 12 months. How did you get involved with this and what motivates you to do this work? 
I actually uh, am originally from Omaha, Nebraska. I grew up in a, a tough neighborhood. Um, unfortunately, got involved in some gangs and stuff because that was just kind of the culture uh, within my neighborhood and within my family. And uh, after I finally got my life together, I started going back into the communities and trying to help out as much as I possibly could. And I started going back into jails and prisons as well to lend services. And uh, one of the biggest needs was always when individuals wanted to turn their lives around or when individuals were getting uh, released from prison, they had no resources for themselves uh, once they got out. And so I kind of got frustrated with going in and kind of, you know, giving the great speeches and getting people motivated to change their lives and turn things around. But yet once they finally got a chance at that freedom, they had no opportunities available to them. So once I moved here from Nebraska and found this position coming available, I felt like it was a great fit because I not only was going to be able to work with uh, violently injured patients and help them get back on the right track and kind of avoid certain uh, situations and circumstances, I was also going to be able to link up with community partners who could actually help take them that next step further. So walk me through what happens when somebody comes through and how you get involved from start to finish. Every morning we come in and we check the EMR for our criteria, which is ages uh, 13 to 26 that have been shot, stabbed, or assaulted. We don't take on any uh, self-inflicted wounds, any domestic violence or child abuse. Uh, we don't involve ourselves with anybody who has level one uh, mental illnesses. Um, but so I go through the charts and see which individuals fit our criteria within the uh, city of Sacramento. And then we uh, can get together uh, as a team and decide who can go to the hospital and we'll go meet with them bedside. Usually when we first uh, make it to the hospital, we try to check in with the nurses to see um, you know, what all is going on. Has the individual had visitors? Was there anything specific or important that we may want to know before walking in to uh, visit with the individual? And then once we make uh, touch base with that nurse, then we'll go in and actually talk bedside with the violently injured patient. Our first meeting is really laid back usually. We're really just trying to build rapport while they're in the hospital. Uh, we don't bring around any paperwork or anything unless it's something that they request. But we just kind of briefly explain who we are, what our program does, how we can help support them once they get out of the hospital, and uh, ask if they have any pressing needs. And we do a, a slight risk assessment and things of that nature just to make sure that they'll be safe when they're going back home uh, with a safety assessment and stuff too. That's awesome. How many patients do you think you have seen come through this program? Oh, wow. Um, I have probably seen, I don't know, at least 100 have, have actually, we've actually met with. We've had many clients between our three ISs. We've had many clients who we've taken on as clients. Um, again, not everybody decides to be a part of our program because everything is voluntary. Um, and there's some people who we've had barriers with like homelessness and, you know, haven't been able to follow up with and things of that nature. So it's really tough when those situations happen. But overall, I'd say probably about 100 people who we've run across. That's great. What do you see as the keys to the success of this program? Really the rapport that we built with them. Once we can gain the patient's trust, it's so much easier to case manage. It's very difficult when an individual who rightly so may have you know, been connected to different systems throughout their life and been let down on so many different levels. And so when a new person comes in and say, hey, I can help you, it's kind of like, yeah, right. I already know. Everybody says they can help me and then they don't do anything. And so we don't really get that buy in. But when you do find those individuals who uh, really do buy into the program and really they're buying into us as intervention specialists. And once they buy into that and they trust us, they really allow us 
us to kind of navigate their entire life. They let us in on things that, you know, maybe when they were first shot, they didn't share with us. And then six months down the line, it's like, okay, hey, let me share this with you as well. I've been going through this. This is kind of why I hadn't been kind of contacting you. And then it's like, wow, if you could have told us this at the beginning, we could have, you know, probably gotten you some resources much sooner. But hey, now that we know, now we know how we can move forward and how we can best help you be supported and successful. You talked about that one experience that you've been following essentially since the beginning. Is that pretty standard? Do you follow with a lot of these patients for a long time? Yeah, it really just kind of depends, um, again, on the rapport you build with them, the resources that they're connected to. There are some individuals who may advance from our program who I may not speak to again unless it's for something like, you know, we had them call them in for an interview or uh, if I have a job resource and I know they're looking for a particular job, then I might send it to them. But there are some clients who we really build a great rapport with. Uh, they consider us as part of their family and their inner circle. And so, yeah, we do stay in contact with them. Uh, of course, they won't be on our caseload, but we can uh, help them out as much as we possibly can. And we're still connected to the same resources that we have connected them to. So we're always hearing about their success stories and things that they may need uh, in the future. Anything I've missed? Anything else you want to share about the program or your experience? Um, no, I think our program is growing. I think our presence in the hospital is growing, which is very important. We've done a, a lot of work trying to uh, show our faces in the hospital, uh, meeting with doctors and nurses and surgeons, and just trying to get the word out about our program. Uh, we're getting additional funding come through, which is why we we're actually able to hire a third intervention specialist recently. Um, and she came on and she's just hit the ground running. She's awesome. Our team works well together. And uh, we're here to support any violently injured patient within our system um, that, you know, obviously fits our criteria. But even outside of that, sometimes uh, we're called upon because, hey, we just have the resources available to us. And the individual may not be within our age range, but hey, we know the people who we can connect them with. And so we always want to be a resource for our hospital. Uh, we love this hospital. And I think we are making great strides um, to work together as a team. Uh, both as physicians as well as us as kind of lay people. Okay, my faith in humanity is restored. I love what Chevist is doing. He is truly making a difference. You know, we may not always get everything right at UC Davis, but I really appreciate that our colleagues in our system support programs like this that really wrap around our patients and lift them up where they are. It's super powerful. Pulse check. Wrap around is possible. We can successfully reach out to our at-risk youth, provide them with resources, give them the leg up they need to succeed. Take that moment of violence and turn it into a moment of opportunity. Meet patients where they are. Use cultural humility and trauma-informed care. This ideal is possible. Hospitals around the U.S. are creating programs that can help youth, including UC Davis. Check out Javi.org for more ideas and inspiration for your own ED. If you are inspired and want to explore something like this in your community, message us on social media at Impulse Podcast and we can connect you with our team. Or check out the show notes for a link to the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention, or Javi. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for what you do to make this all work. Thank you to our department for caring for violently injured patients and to UC Davis for supporting programs like this. See you all next time. <laughs>